Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity. And today I'm joined by Susan Pendergrass, David Stokes, and Coriana Beyer from Show Me Institute. Susan, this week we finally got some test results, some data that we can look at surrounding school performance during the pandemic. What was the news? Yeah, I think the last three times I've been on this podcast, when you ask me what I'm looking forward to, it's like the test results to be released. Well, they were released. They're preliminary and they're only state level. But basically, it's uh, pretty sobering. It's what we it's very much what I expected that we dropped across the board and everything. You know, you can't just miss a year and a half of school and stay on track. Um, But some of the things that really emerged is that uh, the virtual students, the virtual experiment was a failure for very many kids in math. um, 50 plus percent of kids scored what's called below basic, which means minimal understanding of the material. Another 30% scored at basic, which is partial understanding. What we're looking for is proficient. And so 85% of kids were didn't hit that mark in math. So math virtually did not work. Also, one big concern is that the third grade reading scores dropped by a lot, by seven points from 49% proficient, which isn't great to 42%. And that's a group I've been really worried about because early reading is so critical to success in school. If you don't read well, as you hit fourth grade, your science book, your math book, your social studies book will start to be something you can't read and understand. So you really need to get those reading skills solid by third grade. And unfortunately, that was one of the biggest drops, seven points in proficiency. Then another thing is that the the drops were distributed pretty unevenly by student group. Um, For some reason, DESE took math, reading, and science scores and blended them all together in one pot to look at a breakdown by subgroup. But for Black students in particular, when you throw all those scores together, only 15% of the Black students scored proficient last year, 85% below grade level. So who took took this test? So every student was supposed to take the test. But you had and you took the test on a computer. They took a test on the computer, but you had to go into the school building to take the test on the computer. Uh, so if you were a virtual student all year, you had to go into the school building. So out of about around 500,000 students should have taken the test, about 450,000 did. So we're, we missed 10 percent. Um, you know, it's it's easy for me to speculate on who those kids are who did not come into the building to take the test, but it's not doesn't seem likely that it would be the high flyers. So, um, so we're missing 10% of kids. Um, and then it's the, the typical third through eighth grade uh, reading and math and science. And then in high school, a reading math and science. And then in high school, you know, there's these thing called end of course tests for like geometry, algebra, physical science. Well, one takeaway is that those, that's voluntary and most kids decided to skip it. So a lot of those kids that should have taken those EOSA tests did not take them. So physical sciences, like 900 kids took it, um, you know, optional. So, um, but it's a first look at what happened in the last year. And it certainly should give us some type of direction for where to go from here. I will say my impression of the State Board of Education meeting and Desi's briefing on it is that they want to be very, very cautious in making anyone feel badly about these results. Like we want to, you know, focus on um, catching up and and not use these to to blame or point fingers or, or just say anything negative. Uh, we can't compare scores to the years before. 
which I guess is true, but I still think the fact that 35% of Missouri students overall scored proficient in math is problematic. It's one third, two thirds did not. But um, so they wanna be very careful about how we use the results. And then it, by the end of the year, they're gonna release the results for the districts and the schools as they have to by federal law. And you know they have $3 billion. I hope that they're using some of that money to figure out where they should spend, I mean, some of this information to figure out where to spend that money. Uh, so it seems intuitive that this would be the situation across the country, right? This doesn't seem like that uh, Missouri would be an outlier here. No, that's right. And states are like in the last week or so beginning to release their data. And that's pretty consistent with what we're finding. Now, some states like Ohio, they tested kids in the fall and the spring. So they also know sort of how they did during the year and they're using that information. Um, but the federal, the, you know, the deal with taking federal Title I money, which we get a sizable chunk of, uh, plus the three billion in stimulus money is you have to release it. So you can't sit on the test scores and they had to take them last year, but they couldn't be used for accountability. In other words, they couldn't be used to punish districts or schools. And I think they want to ask, well, they haven't said for sure. There was a waiver two years ago. There was a waiver last year, whether we get a waiver on using them for accountability or not this year is yet to be seen, but, but no district or school will be punished based on these test scores. Um, you know, we just want to use it for growth. And anyway, the, the, the commissioner of education said that we could either use these test scores as a flashlight to see what's happening or as a hammer to punish. And they want to use it as a flashlight. I'm not totally sure uh, what that means. They just want to use it as a, a tool for analysis. And um... I mean, I hear this. I've heard this for a long time. And I'm not going to lose any friends over this that I haven't already lost. But I mean, the people within the education establishment want to be kind of left alone to make of it what they will make of it. And they don't want anyone from the outside using it to say that they're not doing a good job, basically. And, you know, teachers don't want to be evaluated and have their salary based on their evaluations, even though every job I've ever had, I get an annual evaluation and performance review and that affects my salary. They don't want that only for growth. And they really like to keep the story positive as much as possible and not make kids feel bad or teachers feel bad. But at some point, somebody needs to feel pretty bad about these results. I mean, they're bad. So it's time to, you know, I keep saying it's cliche, but it's like a Sputnik moment. Like we can't lose another whole year of schooling. You only go to school for 12 years. If two and a half of them are sort of like, well, let's, you know, not feel badly. It's a big deal. And we could be, you know, doing much more intensive um, uh, ways of helping these kids catch up with catch up with like tutoring and after school programs and summer school programs. And parents have indicated that they're willing to getting kids individualized learning plans, but some charter schools do. But every kid could have an individualized learning plan. We could be getting really intensive about this. I don't hear that sense of urgency from the State Board of Education. Um, or the commissioner, but that doesn't, I don't want to say that they don't have it, but I didn't hear it in the two meetings that I listened to. It's like, yeah, we took the bandaid off and we see how bad the cut is, but let's not focus on it. Let's focus on what's going right. And I don't know. I think we should triage the cut personally. Last thing before we move on, uh, is it um, your uh, thought that maybe the future test results that you said we're going to get are going to follow this trend line or is there any reason to believe that uh, we'll see we'll see a different result 
Well, I mean, ideally when we get test results for 21, 22, all hundred percent of the kids will be in there, not just 90%. So we'll know what happened with the kids who didn't show up. We know a lot of kids did, have not shown up. Um, I, we don't know where they are. So, and then I also know that a lot of school districts are still in the, you know, quarantine on quarantine, quarantine on quarantine situation right now. And they, you know, kind of scrapped their hybrid plan. So they don't have that available. And we now know that virtual learning did not work well for so many students. So I, I don't know. I don't, I, I think that I would not want to be a superintendent or school board member right now, but I think they're probably scrambling again this year. And, and we, you know, time is of the essence. We've got to get back on track here. Quick question, Susan, perhaps looking for the, the positive spin on all this. My, my question is, how were the video game proficiency scores in the, in the testing? Because I, <laughs> I, would, I would imagine those skyrocketed. Like the, the Call of Duty proficiency ratings are crazy through the roof. So that could be true. Another thing that, you know, I keep reading anecdotally is that uh, the hacking of Zoom, like kids have really gotten pretty smart about yeah. hacking <laughs> the need to be on Zoom. And so, you know, um, and so th that's some kids have put their energy there. But I also know talking to parents that like you take a third grader who is so excited to finally get back to school in person. And then two weeks into the school year, you tell them that they're quarantining and going back on Zoom. And a lot of them are like, nope, not going to do it. Like, I'm not going to get back on the computer. And so that's got to be really hard to deal with as a parent. I can imagine high school students in the same situation. Like they just don't want to go back to that. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of kids not maybe not playing video games that probably burned out on Zoom early last year, dropped out essentially and got a job and it'll be hard to get them to come back. All right. Well, from test scores to TIFFs, there's a proposed new development in Webster Groves. David Stokes, what's going on? Well, they've got a new uh, multi-use residential condos, apartments, restaurants, retail, uh, sort of the, the typical mixed-use megaplex development in north central webster groves and it's it looks it looks nice in many in many respects uh webster groves are this whole area could use more housing options uh but it's about a 320 million dollar project and of course they want 35 million dollars in in tax increment financing money or tax subsidies also known as corporate welfare for it and it's that's just that's a terrible fact that Every big development now in our urban areas and way too many in the rural areas of Missouri just demands, requests, tax subsidies. And even more frightening in Webster Groves is that they ask for eminent domain authority from, from the city as part of this proposal so that if somebody doesn't agree to sell, they'd have the right to take that property for what is an entirely private development there. Now, the articles in the, the Post-Dispatch and the Webster Kirkwood Times weren't entirely clear. They, they said that the developers asked for eminent domain authority from the city and then later said that they weren't going to use it. So does that mean they still want it, but they promise not to use it unless maybe they really have to at the end of it? Uh, I don't. That's not clear, but, but I think there's a lot of things should happen here. Uh, most of all, the, the city of Webster Groves should, whatever they decide on anything else, absolutely refuse to grant eminent domain authority. And the county TIF commission, uh, which will have primarily county representatives on it, thanks to the ch changes to the TIF commission makeup several years ago, I think they should reject the, the tax subsidy for it. And then, as for the rezoning of that area around, in sort of in the general square of Gore, Kirkham, Lockwood, and Rock Hill, 
uh, as for rezoning and allowing it, if it doesn't have the subsidy or the eminent domain, well, that's up to the city of Webster Groves. And I think it might be a very interesting proposal at that point. So correct me if I'm wrong, there are already businesses that are in this area, and that's why they might need the eminent domain if they don't want to leave, right? They've got, it's primarily a business area. I think there are some residents in the area too, but it's a, it's not, not a, I think it's about a dozen acres total. So yeah, you've got people living there paying taxes. You've got businesses operating there paying, paying taxes, producing jobs. Well, yeah, so, it's, it's not some area that's so obsolete and it's just impossible to develop that they couldn't. Oh, yeah, it's not, not a horrible area where you, know, you really need taxpayer dollars to get rid of this eyesore area. There's already people there. It's like already proven to be an area that you can develop, you can live on, you can be successful on, but yet they couldn't possibly do any sort of development without taxpayer dollars. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's 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 a nice area. I know the area well. They've got it. It may not be the the glitz and glamour that every member of a city council wants wants their wants every city to be the new Beverly Hills here. But <laughs> no, they've got businesses, successful businesses operating there. They've got residents in that. You know, the the developers have proposed to build a lot more, and that may be wonderful. But I don't think they need taxpayer subsidies to do it. And I adamantly don't think they should have the eminent domain authority to force anybody to sell. That was the worst aspect of the University City proposal for the Costco up at Olive and 170, where the city sort of played politics by not granting any eminent domain authority for residents. So they couldn't kick, they couldn't use eminent domain to take any residents out. And that was good, but they did grant eminent domain authority for, for businesses. And while I don't believe that eminent domain authority was required, the developers were able to reach agreements with all the business owners. The f- and I could be wrong about that, but the fact is that eminent domain authority stood over their head like the sword of Damocles, say either reach an agreement or we're going to take it by eminent domain. And that totally alters the whole negoti- negotiating tactic. And I do, I'll double check on that. I think eminent domain proceedings were, were started on that university city proposal, but, uh, but I'm not sure if they were if it went through via eminent domain or not. Are there any opportunities for residents or business owners of Webster Groves to give comment on this? There are a lot. There's been, the Webster Kirkwood Times has been covering this pretty well. There's been a lot of people showing up to the Webster Groves Planning Commission meeting. That's the committee that will give the preliminary determination on the zoning changes to authorize it. So, and apparently, according to the articles, there's been a lot of opposition to it. Uh, Show Me Institute will be showing up and I'll be giving testimony, and Coriana may be there as well, at the at the TIF Commission hearing, which is I think October, is in October. I'm not going to give a date because I forget the exact date. It's in late October. It's online and easy to find, but uh, we'll be providing testimony at at that point. So there's a lot of approvals yet to be given on it, and it sounds like there's a lot of interest and engagement in Webster Groves, which is great. Kind of seems like it's whack-a-mole for you guys. Every week, every couple of weeks, uh, there's a new one of these projects that we're talking about. They're popping up all over the state. Well, they've just been going. Perhaps that's a sign of the, the recession and the economic troubles we've had that now all the developers feel that they've got a stronger argument to ask for subsidies with, uh, with the troubles that the economy had in 2000 due to the, in, I'm sorry, in 2020 due to the pandemic and the ongoing issues we have now. Uh, it's very un- unfortunate, but right, it's, it seems to be happening right and left or around the state here. Yeah, and we see less and less that these like TIF commissions and all these things are saying no. So I get the incentive to want to ask for 
public dollars if you can get them. Like you'd be if you don't ask for them, you're basically turning down thirty million dollars that you could have gotten perhaps without much of a fight in most of these cases. And so I get from the developer side, even though it's not, you know, the free market way to do it, it's not like the best use of taxpayer dollars, if someone's basically offering you them, you would be stupid to turn them down. And the good news is that the St. Louis County TIF Commission has said no to some of these projects in the past. They they approved the University City one, but they said no to a major floodplain TIF in Maryland Heights. In prior years, they had said no to, to TIFs in, in other cities that were then able to override the County TIF Commission, but that part of the law has been changed, so that really can't happen near as much now, thankfully. So they, they helped kill the the big TIF commission, the big TIF request in Maryland Heights in in very in 2019, early 2020. That was wonderful, and hopefully they'll do the same thing here. We saw in Boonville a an enormous TIF request for a residential development there did not go forward and has been stopped. That was wonderful news. But for all these victories, you still see more community improvement districts, more transportation development districts, more TIFs being passed. Oftentimes, sort of under the radar, not getting much attention. And Susan's keeping an eye on the East Coast, the the TIFs. So let us know, Susan, if you see any out there that Coriana and David I need to address. certainly will. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, okay, so last week, uh, Coriana debuted her, her uh, Hot or Not in 2022 segment. This week, we have another new segment, uh, Food Truck Potpourri with Coriana Byer. Um, so there's things going on all around the state with food trucks, mobile food vendors, as they're uh, often referred to. Let's start in Ladue. What's going on in Ladue? So Ladue currently does not allow food trucks um, anywhere pretty much within the city, events, anything like that. And so they have sort of a new um, proposal, a new ordinance part that they are going to put through that would allow food trucks. When I say allow, though, I mean just barely allow um, with the strictest rules. Basically, you can use them for special events that are permitted as special events. Um, The food trucks have to have certain um, licenses. They have to have all these approvals. They can only operate um, a certain number of feet away from businesses. You can't have them at your own private events. Or, excuse me, you can have one at a private event. That's it. God forbid you would want more than one. And that has to have a special permit just to have, like, a food truck come to your own house to your own party. You have to get a special permit for that. That's insane. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, any forward momentum for food trucks, I've been talking about them for a long time just because I, I really like them and I see them as a great opportunity to be sort of innovative, especially these days when so a huge expense for businesses is getting the actual physical location and it's really hard to keep a physical restaurant going for a long time. You're kind of tied down to your locality and it's a much better and freer way to kind of get your business if you can take it directly to people. Um, so I've been supportive of them, and there's been movement in other places. Um, Ozark, that whole area has kind of done a little bit of that, and they took a much bigger step forward than Ledoux has. David, you want to talk about Ozark a little bit? Well, Lake Ozark, Missouri, has also was sort of the outlier in the Lake of the Ozarks region, didn't allow food trucks at all. And they recently, last month, passed a bill that went – much further than Ladue is doing here and generally allows food trucks to operate on private property in Lake Ozark. Uh, now they made an exception for the strip, which is the really can be very crowded section of near Bagnell Dam, sort of the heart of the Lake of the Ozarks region. It's so crowded at times during, during the summer months on the strip that I sort of see the concerns about the added traffic and the added the blockages from potential 
trucks in that area. So as well as I don't like the idea that they're kept off the strip, I understand it, and I hope that maybe we'll go for the next season here, and maybe Lake Ozark will make some changes to allow them at certain times on the strip or in certain places along the strip. But on the whole, it's very good that they are now, for the most part, allowing food trucks in Lake, in Lake Ozark. Much better, much better than in Ladue. So going back to Ladue for a second, what is the uh, opposition talking point for the residency restriction? Is it a traffic concern, or is it a noise concern? They don't want people setting up a, a food truck uh, fair in their driveway. What, have you heard anything about that? I'm not sure exactly what it is, David. I don't know if you know, but it seems to me that it's, I mean, a little bit arbitrary, of course. Um, but the the biggest kind of complaints or arguments against the food truck is basically that they don't know how to deal with them, I would say, whether it's like the traffic or having them too close to other businesses. They just have a lot of things that they're not sure if they just were to blanket let food trucks in what would happen would the lines go into the streets and kind of block traffic would all the restaurants that are brick and mortar restaurants would they just lose all their business and completely close down and it would just all the food trucks would take over I think they just don't know what would happen I don't think either of those things would happen but I just don't think they know and so for the private residents it I mean it seems arbitrary to me I'm not sure what the difference is between one food truck for your private party and two food trucks for your private party well, I, c- I could guess here. I'm, I'm, I lived in Ladue for a long, grew, grew up there, high school, uh, college. My parents l- lived there. Uh, I love it. It's a, it's a great city. It's, you know, in the same way, I like to joke about Ladue, in the same way that Prussia was an army with its own country. L- Ladue is sort of a country club with its own city hall. Sort of, <laughs> sort of you, got, you got that vibe to it there. I think one of the things Ladue city officials would say to give them to try and look at it from their point of view so many of the the streets in Ladue are just people tend to live on small lanes and there might be seven eight nine ten houses on the on the lane off of Clayton Road or off of Ladue Road or off of Litzinger but those lanes where most people live aren't very wide so I think they would be saying I don't agree with the city of Ladue here and I think there'd be ways around it but I think they'd argue that a food truck on that lane would take up would take up a lot of would block a lot of traffic frankly so i would understand that if you had a food truck at a party that you know you should have to park them in your own driveway perhaps if you wanted to come to a party and have food trucks there most driveways in in the do tend to be large if it's in big houses they could fit a couple food trucks in there and if you want to park it on partly on your lawn as well you know go go to, go to town uh so i don't like the the tiny you can't even call them baby steps. It's really not moving forward for this proposal in Ladue to simply allow special event only food trucks on a very limited basis is not is not moving forward in the slightest. There are other parts of Ladue along Clayton Road, along in the commercial centers where I think food trucks should be allowed to park, and operate, and sell sell goods to the 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 people, the people, the workers, the students, whomever. Yeah, and like you said, there are ways to figure it out. We don't have to just blanket not allow them in all these places. And it seems that, you know, lawmakers and the people of Ladue just don't want to try and figure it out. Like, they're not giving the food trucks the opportunities to operate. They're not, like, asking food truck owners, what do you think the solution is, anything like that. They are giving this slightest of inch so that they can, you know, say they have food trucks, have food trucks at their special events, which I'm sure all the people in Ladue want but they're not really trying to embrace this new industry that we're seeing pop up. And I think we need to give a shout out right here to the Balkan Treat Box, which is 
hottest, one of the hottest restaurants in St. Louis yes. that is on Esquire Magazine's best new restaurant list, top 20, uh, the James Beard Award, best new restaurant list, semi-finalist actually for that, and start as a food truck. And it is, you know, by allowing somebody um, from an immigrant community to go ahead and put a wood-fired stove on a truck, which I always thought was a bold move, <laughs> and, uh, and and make a go of it. Now it's a hot restaurant and now they're going to frozen foods. I mean, it's like a great entrepreneurial story. And why would we want to cut that off? There is a public hearing coming up in, in the due uh, about about this, September 20th. All the dates of these upcoming Webster Groves, TIFF hearings, the due food truck hearings and the like. We'll make sure they're on the, uh, on the website. All right. And wrapping up, Coriano, what are you uh, keeping tabs on in the next week? So there is a lawsuit going on in New York City where um, DoorDash and Grubhub and um, Uber, which owns Uber Eats, um, they are suing New York City for the caps that they have put on the commissions that these um, third-party delivery services can charge restaurants to use their services. And St. Louis City also has one of these caps. So I will be following that just to see what happens. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't – I don't really – know the intricacies of the entire case but they basically are saying that the city needs to get out of these contracts that were negotiated between two private companies the government has no um room for that they should not be in that space at all and um so what happens with the lawsuit could potentially have repercussions in st louis so i'll be following that and david next week in kansas city unfortunately apparently the the hotel bravo tiff subsidies, which were defeated by the Kansas City Council previously, hopefully are not. Hopefully, that will continue because they're unfortunately being brought back, as I understand it, and likely to be voted on again by the City Council next week. And as I hear from contacts in Kansas City, it looks like they may be approving a large TIF for the Hotel Bravo. It's just a classic example of, of you know, you people, people have their voices heard, defeat this tax subsidy for a luxury hotel. And yet, you know, you've got so much money in the developer community, the lobbyists and the like, they just never stop. They just keep up the effort, keep keep the lobbying, keep the campaign donations, keep it going forward. And then here you have a year or two later, they're going to come up for it again. So that'd be that'd be terrible for a lot of reasons. So once again, it's time for the Kansas City Council to just say November Oscar to Hotel Bravo. Susan, what are you looking at? So I heard from both Board of Education meeting and the Commissioner of Education that they're going to use the new test score data to determine how to spend the federal stimulus money of $3 billion. I'll be looking to see if they make any announcements on that front or if they're going to go with what they've already decided to do, which is a lot of teacher supports. Um, just see, you know, try to hold them uh, to their words. All right. And as always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Coriana, David, and Susan, thank you very much. 